gentlemen, welcome back to these. Go to eleven once again. I'm Nathan Bell. Joining me as always, Zach Bartles. Zach, what's going on, man? Man, we're at nine hundred and ninety-one dollars on the Ted nice. Cluck essay book Kickstarter. This that means the next person who funds will bring us over the top uh, to a meaningless number that's that's more than we set out to get. But still, <laughs> I mean, it feels symbolic. That's right. That's right. I mean. Once you once you actually reach the mark, aren't all the numbers kind of like meaningless at that point? It's just more, uh, you know, more and more it's, and more. Well, the the beautiful thing, I mean, Ted and I have both done uh, publishing in the you know the the traditional kind of advanced play, paying uh, world, and then we've also done it in the indie world, and it's nice that this time we'll be able to like. Give Ted a bit of an advance on this indie book, so that's that's unusual. So, nice. God bless Kickstarter and the like eight percent of everything that they take. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, now tell us a little bit, Zach, about some of the promotional stuff. Uh, do you do you kind of have some of that information there of the different tiers that people can pledge? I know you can go on Kickstarter and look some uh-huh. of that stuff up, but um, do you have some of that information there? Yeah, yeah. The highest level was called You're Our White Knight, which is a reference, of course, to Die Hard. And uh, stupidly, we only made four of those available for a $100 kickstart, and all four of them were, like, snatched up right away. Wow. Um, and that involved, like, being mentioned in the acknowledgments and everything. But then we've got one uh, that, that's got, uh, you know, being mentioned on uh, the Happy Rant and the Gut mm-hmm. Check Pod and Much Made of You and uh you know a bunch of other things to go along with it and then there's uh all of them get um thirty dollars and up get a copy of this book signed a copy of hello i love you signed which is uh a book i think you did did you do that crossway or with moody uh it was about adoption uh international adoption just uh uh, one of my favorite books actually um it has kind of a cult following uh and so yeah you know there's a bunch And, and uh gut check and happy rant sticker for everybody to Courtesy of uh, courtesy of Mission Aware, there, right? Mission Aware somehow like wound up horning in and getting mentioned, even though. I did, so what you did was you floated a note to Jeff uh, at Mission Aware that said, "Do you still like us? Yes, no, circle one," and you didn't circle anything. We're, we're holding out hope still. I knew we were on the rocks when I saw that we were back to only having one. These go to eleven page on missionaware.com. I'll know the relationship's officially over when we don't have any. <laughs> I'm looking right now, man. Don't think I'm not looking. Labs, these go to 11 right before Gut Check Podcast. There it is. What, what? I, I don't know. <laughs> I, uh, I couldn't tell you, man. Okay, well, there there it is. <laughs> Nice. Oh, man. Well, definitely, um, you know, want to send that out to our listeners. You know, get on Kickstarter and uh, look up. What's the name of the book called again? Uh, it's called A Hard Thing on a Beautiful Day and Other Essays. Nice. So check that out on Kickstarter. Go ahead. And there's a lot of really cool incentives and uh, things that you get for helping out with the Kickstarter. So definitely get on Kickstarter and uh, look for Ted Kluck's new book uh, coming out. And is there kind of a release date for that? Yeah, July 7, I think. Okay, July 7. Nice. Nice. Um, Zach, this is uh, really kind of cool for us because it has actually been a little while since, well, I mean, you and I are getting back into a rhythm and groove of podcasting the two of us. 
Um, but it's been even Nathan, I think anyone who's taken a look at you and me and our chalk white, <laughs> like middle-aged forums just knows there's no rhythm or groove in fall whatsoever. And our guest today isn't helping matters. I'm looking at a picture of him. Yeah, we're, I'm pretty we're lily white. <laughs> there's, there's no rhythm or, or groove, but but we are into a routine. There which, we go. Which does sound like it's up our alley. <laughs> Oh man! Well, dude, with that, uh, with that, there definitely want to introduce our guest, uh, Stephen Ackerson, uh, author of New Testament Church Dynamics: uh, A Leader's Guide to Biblical Growth and Planting. Uh, Stephen, how are you doing today, man? Well, starting partly cloudy. How about you guys? <laughs> lovely, lovely in Michigan. Dude, what, what what is Michigan like? Because last week we were uh, chatting it up, and you were like, it's horrible it is cold and rainy and you turn to the corner it's 67 degrees and sunny today i had the windows open on the car the sunroof yeah life returns to to people it's wonderful nice nice well zach uh you have uh mr stephen atkerson's uh bio there so why don't you go ahead and uh read that because i know that you uh dug far and wide uh, to get that, uh, because yeah. it's um, as, as we have astutely observed, it's it's missing from the book. So, <laughs> well, you know, I, I found it since I've been sitting here. It is. Oh, in it's inside. Oh, somewhere. okay. It's hidden on page one nineteen. One nineteen, so like somewhere. Oh, about the author. The author. Yeah. Oh, After okay. which, there's about his organization, and then and then the gospel. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to read this. All right, uh, Stephen E. Ackerson. Steve serves as pastor teacher of the Southern Baptist Church he started in Atlanta in 1991. Um, I'm not going to mention that I was like 14. Uh, well, in college, he joined First Baptist Church of Atlanta, Charles Stanley, pastor. Uh, after graduation, he moved to Birmingham, where he led downtown First Baptist College department, ministering to students at Sanford University, including then student Al Moeller. Just, just a little aside, there's a lot of name dropping in this. Uh, he, he has yeah, I got to get credibility. <laughs> he has an MDiv from Mid America Baptist Theological Seminary, and while there, was part of Bellevue Baptist Worship Program. I'm sorry, Workship Program. Mm-hmm. Adrian, I was listening to Adrian Rogers on the radio today. One of my favorite preachers, actually, Adrian Rogers, pastor. He then ministered seven years on the pastoral staff of a mid-sized Baptist church. In the late '80s, Steve began working with churches that desire to follow apostolic traditions of church practice. He has transitioned from mega churches to mid-sized churches to Roman villa-sized churches. Married 34 years, he and his late wife, Sandra, have three grown children and a growing number of grandchildren. He's author of what we already said that we're full circle. And by the way, yeah. you're dedicatory to your wife. Literally, like my wife came into, uh, I have a cigar room in the back of my house where I read, and she's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, this is just like the nicest thing I've ever read. And uh. it makes It'd be so sad and so happy for you at the same time. So, oh well, thank you, brother. Amen. Very, very cool. Um, so, yeah, let's um, let's just jump into this. Um, I, I know we could probably ask you like about the whole journey from how you got from being at these big churches to how you slowly became convinced of some of these practices. But I think the practices themselves are more interesting, even though that would be interesting. I, I want to get you get your your. Uh, perspective on some of these things and i want to do a little like light pushback on some of it and and uh you know make things a little interesting and i'm sure nathan will jump in here and there um but i discovered you um 
there was a period of time there where like every day, multiple times a day, uh, there were um, these ads on Facebook with Sinatra. Uh, oh, yeah. I did yeah. Church My Way, which made me think of uh, Chris Roseborough and a couple other guys who've kind of referenced that song in, in terms of and, – and at one time I was just like, all right, I got to know what this is about. And I clicked it, and I spent like a, a whole afternoon watching videos of you teach. Um, mm. it, it really was great stuff, and, and I immediately emailed you about, about having you on. These go to 11. Yeah, um, I appreciate that. Amen. The, the video I watched first was about the Lord's Supper. Okay. And uh, it was a day, we have monthly communion uh, at, at my church. It was the day before we were going to have communion. And uh, I was like, man, this is some really compelling stuff. There's some <laughs> stuff that feels a little out there to me because it's so, you know. It, new. It, 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 yeah, well, not even new. Like, I mean, it's, it's describing a world that's gone in a way uh, where you're like, maybe it's not. Why can't we uh, do it? And, and uh, so maybe just if you could give us kind of your the the brief overview of um, what you teach in in the uh, New Testament Reformation Fellowship about uh, the Lord's Supper and and how that teaching differs from what happens in most churches today. When you look at how the early church, and by that I mostly mean the church in the New Testament, although it's true out in the church history for the next several hundred years. Uh, in the New Testament church, you start to see glimpses of how they celebrated the Lord's Supper, and you start to realize, well, it's a whole lot different than what we do. And in short, the early church celebrated the Lord's Supper as an actual supper. It was a true meal, just like there was the Passover, Passover feast, so too it was the Lord's feast. The Lord's Supper grew directly out of the Passover, of course. And when Jesus passed the bread and the wine, he didn't separate it from the food in any way. Matthew tells us while they were eating, he passed the bread around. And then in the other Gospels, we find out that either before and then after the meal, he passed at least two cups and gave meaning to them. And so um, you go out into church history and you see the church's celebrating the Lord's Supper in a way that was described as a time of fellowship. When you think about how we do it today, fellowship is the last word that would come to your mind. And then also in Corinthians, for example, um, the sin in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 11, is that some people were going home hungry from the Lord's Supper. Well, obviously they had a problem that was completely on a different level than than what we do today. I mean, everybody goes hungry today the way we do it. And so when you look at the New Testament, when you look at early church history, it's obvious the early church celebrated the Lord's Supper as a meal. They had the bread and the wine in the context of the agape or the love feast. And, you know, that's not even speculative on my part. Scholar after scholar after scholar of every denominational background, the ones that study this, that's what they say. It was an actual meal. And so just from a selfish point of view, I thought, okay, if that's what they did, what are we missing if we don't do that? And what you're missing is a tremendous time of fellowship and edification through fellowship over a meal. I don't mean it to sound too crass, but if it, the, the, the Lord's Supper 
celebrated as an actual meal every Lord's Day really is the Christian equivalent of the neighborhood bar, where you've got this unstructured time of relaxed fellowship. And so I think one of the things we're missing is a blessing if we don't do it the New Testament way. And um, when we go to church today, you know, it's a great time of worship. I'm all for worship. Hopefully it's a good time of teaching uh, from the scriptures. And I'm all for that. But it's like when the show's over, the show's over. And they, you, they just turn you out onto the street. Okay, well, now what? Well, the rest of that story is not only are we to, to worship God in our spirits on the Lord's Day, not only are we to be stimulated in our minds through the, the message from the scriptures, but also uh, our relationship is to be uh, horizontal with the other people there. And when you have the meal, when you add the meal, that completes the, the wonderful experience that ought to be normative for all of God's people. So that's the, that's the selfish part of it. On the other hand, there's also some forward-looking aspects to the Lord's Supper. And uh, most statements of faith, like the Southern Baptist Faith and Message, says the Lord's Supper has got two purposes. It looks backwards to the cross but it also looks forward to the second coming. And so if you only have the bread and wine at the Lord's Supper, well, of course, we only look backwards to the cross. When you add in the meal, the agape, the fellowship, that's a picture of what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. And what's going to happen is the wedding banquet of the Lamb. And the first time Jesus passed that cup, he, he said, okay, you guys, drink of it. And then he gives them a reason. And he doesn't say anything about it representing his blood the first time he passes the cup. What he says is drink of it because I won't drink of it again until I drink it with you in the kingdom of God. And so every time we drink the wine of the Lord's Supper, of course, we remember in the past uh, the blood of Jesus. But we're also to remember the promise of Jesus that He's going to come back and eat it again with us. And so when you, when you have the Messianic banquet in the future and we, we have a banquet today, well, what better way to typify a, a banquet than with a banquet? So we're, we're act, actually acting out a prayer uh, in this banquet that asks Jesus to come back and eat it again with us. So not only is there the, the fellowship and edification through fellowship that happens, but there's this weekly reminder of this, not only Jesus' death on the cross, but of this expectation of the coming of the Lord. So look forward to it. And so it, it looks to me, uh, Zach and Nathan, like when the early church celebrated the Lord's Supper, it was just that. It was a celebration, not a funeral. And... Mm-hmm it was more like rehearsal dinner uh, at a wedding in anticipation of the coming wedding the next day. It had a, it had a wedding celebratory aspect to it more so than a funeral aspect. And of course today, as you well know, we have made it an, an introspective individualistic funeral. And I believe we're cheating people if that's all we give them at the Lord's Supper. So we're missing a blessing. And mm-hmm. that's the long and the short of it. Um, okay. Now, people say, well, that's not commanded. Well, okay, it's not commanded. But most, most evangelicals 
usually want to do things the New Testament way as much as they can. I mean, no particular form of church government is commanded. That's why there's these different forms of government. Uh, it's not commanded that we meet on Sunday, but most, most churches do because that's the pattern. And believers' baptism is a pattern also that we follow. It doesn't say you cannot baptize babies, but you know the Baptists, for example, want to follow the pattern of only baptizing believers. So I'm arguing for consistency. Well, there's also a pattern of celebrating the Lord's Supper every week as an actual meal. And of all the changes our church has made, uh, New Testament patterns that aren't typically adopted that we started doing, that one pattern has been the greatest blessing to our church than any other changes we could have made. I often will joke that the the third sacrament for Baptists is that we have potlucks, mm-hmm. um, and you're kind of saying <laughs> yeah. that that, uh, that uh, the potluck ought probably not to be separated from the bread and the cup. Uh, and right. uh, we we have a number of times. Uh, I, I was a little uncomfortable with this, but a few years ago, uh, we we teamed up with a couple other churches, Presbyterian and a, a Bible Baptist, and we we did a Passover cedar seder meal. Yeah. Um, which I, I thought was cool in that we, we said this is a teaching thing and a fellowship thing. It's not that yeah. we're bound to this. And uh, we had, so in the midst of eating dinner, we did have the Lord's Supper. And there is an element, I think, to that where you're being nourished physically. And then there, there's the, this thing that, you know, that nourishes the soul um, in with it. Mm-hmm. And I really think it's interesting that in, even though that was, you know, the last supper being kind of played out again, there was less of a, um, you know, funeral face and more of the joy, the joy of the wedding feast, uh, present because you're sitting next to and across from people and, and, uh, even able to kind of talk and things. Um, I, I heard, uh, Piper once, uh, teaching on the Lord's supper and, and made, uh, quite a good deal out of uh, how small the things are as, as kind of a significant thing, you know, like you're, you're not, you're not actually walking away full and that's important because it reminds you that it's not your body that's being fed. You're saying the two things ought to go together. Well, absolutely. And remember it's, you know, it's not just any old meal. This is a sacred covenant meal. And so people need to approach this meal with the same uh, dedication that they would church attendance or tithing, if you know if that's what you believe in. And so um, this is not just a, in that sense, it's not just a potluck that we've tacked on at the end. This is an integral part of the of the church gathering. In fact, Zach, as I recall, I think I'm right on this. The only reason ever given in the Bible as to the purpose of a church meeting is to eat the Lord's Supper. And that same reason is given three times, first, first in Acts, I think twice in uh, 1 Corinthians 11. So, I mean, it, it's so important that when a reason for a church meeting is given is to eat the Lord's Supper, and, and they did it as a meal. So, uh, again, yeah, it's, it, it, should, it, should have, it should rise to the level of, boy, this is a non-negotiable. If, if something's got to go, it's going to be the worship or the teaching, but we're not going to throw over this meal, which is not to say that other stuff is unimportant. Of course it is. But the only reason we're ever given for a church meeting is that meal to eat. So I think God knew what he was doing. You know, it's clear the apostles set it up that way. Well, where'd they get that crazy idea? Well, it looks like they got it from Jesus. 
So I, for one, am loath to mess, to monkey around with, with church the way the apostles set it up. And uh, in fact, um, when you look out in church history, it looks like this meal lasted a couple of hundred years after the New Testament. When it went away was around the time of Constantine. And, you know, they took, uh, they took pagan temples, really, and made them in church, church buildings. Like if you go to Rome, what's that big thing in Rome? The uh, Pantheon. Only reason it's still standing is because they turned it into a church building. They, they tore the rest of those things down whenever they could because they, they had been such a threat to Christianity before that. And so overnight, you got these pagan temples becoming church buildings. And Christians, you know, later centuries, they got kind of a weird about church buildings. And, and they started giving them the significance of the uh, Old Testament temple sanctuary thing, like God's haunting your building. and You don't run in there and you don't shout in there. And some of the early house churches, when they were when people died, they'd leave their homes to the church, and the churches modified it. And sometimes the first thing they did was tile over the bathrooms, because you don't do that in a holy building. And that kind of goes along with the meal. You don't do that in a holy building. It don't go in and it don't come out <laughs> in a holy building. So um, that this this wrong idea of holiness being disassociated from the covenant meal is, is, I think, crippled us in later history. So backing up, though, uh, even when you look at Old Testament history, eating in the temple complex was a big part of the worship. And if you look at the regulations for the sacrifices, when people brought sacrifices to the priests, of course, the priests got some of it. But uh, in many of those sacrifices, the people who brought them ate the food there in the temple complex, too, so that this idea of eating as a part of your worship is very Hebrew as well. Yeah. Now, you, I, I think that Constantine becomes such a uh, convenient kind of bad guy boogeyman. Um, but in your in your book here, you you mention that by the time Justin writes his apology, which is mid second century, these two things have already been uh, kind of separated. The, yeah, they were they were separated, right? They had. Uh, yeah, they've got the bread and the wine separated from the meal, and one was in the morning and one was at night. That was the mm -hmm. first mistake. Now, that's that's awfully early in, in church history. Are you are you kind of a restorationist in your thinking that the church got off track quite quickly and we, we need to kind of get back to something that was lost, well, good grief, almost immediately, if that's the case? I don't like the restoration movement because of course it's associated with the church of Christ, the Mormons and Jehovah's witnesses. And for that matter, the Seventh-day Adventists. But I think you'd have to admit the early church fathers are wretched examples of justification by faith. They seem to really gotten that foggy in a hurry, which is disconcerting. So no, I'm not going to deny the true church has ever ceased to exist. Okay. But um, if I've got a pick between, what I clearly see in the New Testament and scholars agree was the case versus a later development of church history, then I think the burden of explanation ought to fall on the guy who wants to deviate from the New Testament pattern instead of from the guy that wants to follow it. So I, I just, I feel like, uh, as I said before, whatever the reason was, they got rid of that meal and maybe they had great reasons for doing it. Uh, 
it really does need to be a good reason to deviate from the New Testament pattern. And that ought to be the exception and not the rule. So I'm suggesting, uh, just like with Martin Luther, you know, he, uh, there was a problem there with the theology of the Catholic Church. Well, you know, so many of the reformers took, they helped us a lot with theology proper, but they they just turned Catholic cathedrals into Protestant cathedrals. And they kind of, the way they do church went back to Constantine eh, more than it, in some cases it did to the New Testament. So, um, yeah, I'm not saying the church ever ceased to exist. or I'm just saying if everybody that studies it objectively sees that it was a meal in the New Testament, then why in the world wouldn't you want to still do that today? That's my question. And uh, we've got the freedom to do that. I'm not mm -hmm. saying it's a sin not to. I wouldn't say infant baptism is a sin either. I would just say it's an error. Uh, the New Testament pattern is to baptize believers, and so too the New Testament pattern is to celebrate the Lord's Supper as a meal. And uh, I don't want to miss anything God's got for me in that sense. Nathan, what do you, what do you think on this before we move on to the next uh, section here? Sure. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's been interesting, um, you know, listening to um, – you know, you, you speak on this, Stephen, and I, and I was kind of thinking through this, but one of the things that I was thinking too is, you know, in the New Testament, there was, there was really the one primary day for the gathering of the church, um, where today there are a lot more church events and functions that happen where the believers can come together and fellowship a little bit more that I don't think was quite as accessible at that time. I mean, even at that time, you know, the, the rest of the world was on a, you know, seven day work week and it was more unique for the believers to take that one day off in order to celebrate worship and be at church. But the other six days they were typically working where I find myself, you know, thinking about this and I have a lot more opportunities in my fellowship with believers than I think was available back then. I mean, you know, I know I'm there mm. fellowshipping on Sunday, but I'm also there on Tuesday interacting and fellowshipping at youth group. I'm also, you know, um, part of small group and, you know, Bible studies. And so for me, there's, there's those opportunities of fellowship that I think have grown over the centuries that I don't think were, were there um, at those points. Um, but, Zach, Stephen, what Nathan do you think about that? Doesn't it say in Acts that they were in each other's homes day by day breaking bread and devoted to the apostles' teaching and, and prayer? Um, knew you were going to put me on the spot like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, you know, I think there's, you know, something to to be said about about that as well. Um, obviously, since it's in Scripture, but. Um, you know, this is this is the point where I would usually shoot it to Greg. Um, so <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to uh, say I would have to look into that a little bit more um, to you know to look at to look at that and see that. Um, so I'm just going to defer well, to my ignorance at this point. <laughs> well, Nathan, while you were talking, I was thinking, you know, a rose by any other name is still a rose. So if 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 a church can accomplish fellowship during the week in a way that wasn't done in the new Testament. Oh, that's great. As long as they can get it done. Mm -hmm. But I think, and I'm all for that. I understand that. But I think that, um, theologically, 
we shouldn't let it go that easy because you, you know, we talk about the Lord's day. Um, it's, it's when we're talking about the Sunday meeting day, when John said he was in the spirit on the Lord's day in revelation, the Greek there is completely different than the eschatological phrase, the day of the Lord, which is the big second coming judgment thing. And this strange, unusual Greek construction for John uh, being in the spirit on the day belonging to the Lord, which uh, most commentators understood to be Sunday because the day Jesus rose from the dead. Well, that same construction is used of the Lord's Supper. And so it's a little bit weird the way it's structured. So you've got the day belonging to the Lord and you've got the supper belonging to the Lord eaten on the day that belongs to the Lord. So like these two things are, are wed together. And I think there's theological significance in that. And the uh, Didache, one of the earliest Christian writings, maybe the earliest, whenever they celebrated the Lord's Supper, uh, they said, Maranatha, which, you know, meant Lord come. And they understood that the second coming also, excuse me, the Lord's Supper also had something to do with the second coming, not just Jesus' death on the cross. And so, again, um, like uh, our church only does the Lord's Supper when most of the church is expected to be there. We wouldn't typically do it on a Tuesday night fellowship because that's less than a, a group of the whole church or church discipline. It's supposed to involve the whole church. You don't just decide with a small group on Tuesday night to do church discipline and get somebody. It's got to be involved with the whole church. And so um, while fellowships good, during the week is good and while small group get together and dinners are good, I think they should not be a substitute for the main activity, what ought to be the main activity of the gathered assembly corporately on the Lord's day, which is the Lord's Supper. And in, in fact, even in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, when you come together as a church, and then mm -hmm. he starts talking about the Lord's Supper. So, so yeah, I mean, I'm all for fellowship all week, and maybe that does solve the problem for most people, but uh, I'd still rather do it the way we clearly see pattern in the New Testament. Another section of the book is uh, the idea of small churches being a, a biblical prescription rather than uh, something to, to get beyond as quickly as we can uh, or, you know, an indicator of a problem. Uh, and a nice segue, I think, from the last subject to this is when I think about too big of churches, I always think about those little, I didn't see these until about five, ten years ago, not even ten years ago, these little um, pre-wrapped uh, cellophane covered things that are individual uh, elements for the Lord's Supper. You pull off the layer of cellophane and there's a wafer. You take that, you pull off another layer of cellophane and there's this uh, preservative filled grape juice. <laughs> you you come across this, right? Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. I die a little inside whenever I, and, and I, yeah. I once even declined to take part. I was like, there's just, the symbolism here is just too oh. ironic. Oh. Um, Terrible. So, the notion of a small church, and what was nice was reading this, a lot of what you you had come to the conclusion of, um, my uh, research over the years has, has also discovered that house churches weren't necessarily, you know, two families or seven people, that, that these homes could accommodate in their courtyard, the homes of the wealthy people like someone like Philemon could accommodate 100, 125 people, uh, an average small church. 
Um, and I really thought that was in in my mind reading this book. That was the the chapter where the most times I was like, "Yeah, I hadn't thought wow. of it that way." But that's that yeah. is beautiful. Yeah. Uh, how, how did? But I mean, coming from and, and God bless these guys. I, I and I don't think that that you would uh, turn on these guys either and call them heretics or you wouldn't drop their names in your bio. But how right. do you come from Adrian Rogers and Charles Stanley to determining that you know? 15 million people isn't isn't the goal well i think well from being a pastor i mean you the best place for a tree to hide is in the forest mm. and so if the if the pastors don't know everybody in the church there's a problem if and if somebody if the church is so big that if somebody is not there they're not missed then that's a problem and so in as much as we are to shepherd the flock and it's to be like a family, not like an athletic club, then it needs to be of a manageable size so that the, the, the staff the pastors can keep up with them. And so when you consider the fact that everything in the New Testament that's written to a church is written to a church that met in somebody's home, well, you know for a fact it wasn't thousands and thousands of people or even hundreds and hundreds of people. So we start to shoot ourselves in the foot when we get too big. Now, I know Jesus did teach the multitudes, the thousands of people, and that's great for a teaching meeting. Uh, so, you know, if Billy Graham wants to run out when he was alive, if he wanted to run out the college, yeah, not now. <laughs> that's fine. Or if, uh, or if, uh, you know, Bill Gothard wanted to come to town and he used to rent out the Civic Center, thousands of people. That's fine. Eh. Okay. Oh, I bet Bill Gaither wants to come town. And <laughs> <laughs> I'll take Gaither over Gothard any day. Okay. Have you noticed a pattern? To, to have one of these big meetings, your first name's got to be Bill and your last name's got to start with a G. <laughs> but anyway, here's my point. For, for worship, for teaching, for evangelism, man... I don't care how big it is. And if, if you got a guy like Piper and he can draw that many people or MacArthur, that's fantastic. But don't call that church. Church in the New Testament is small enough you can know everybody there and will fit in somebody's home. Although be it a, a Roman villa, not a modern home like we think of it. So we're, we're talking, as you said, uh, scores of people, maybe over 100, but not hundreds in the same congregation. And so... I think those big meetings do serve a good purpose, and I'm all for them. I just don't think they ought to call that church because the things the church is supposed to do, they're not doing. There's not the accountability so often. Um, of course, they're clearly not doing the Lord's Supper's meal. Um, it's not a, And if they did, it wouldn't be a family meal. It would be like going to a cafeteria somewhere with a bunch of people you don't really know. And... Another aspect of early church meetings was, of course, they did church discipline. Well, you got to know each other if, if discipline's going to happen. And their meetings, we haven't talked about this, but early church meetings were participatory, where any brother there could get up and speak. Well, that's not going to happen at Bellevue Baptist Church with 14,000 members. It's just not, and nor should it. But it can happen in a small church. There, there's the opportunity for that to happen. And um, I would argue another biblical pattern is regarding church government is that you've got elders whose one of their jobs is to build consensus 
among the congregation over major decisions. Well, that's workable when they know everybody there, but when you're in church with thousands and thousands of your best friends, th th those lines of relationships don't exist to really build consensus the way it ought to be built. And so you, they revert from consensus to command in their leadership models, which I think is another, my opinion, that's a violation of a New Testament pattern too. So uh, the point of all this is once you get away from the size of a New Testament church and you decide, okay, we're going to violate that pattern, but we're going to get bigger. Well, okay, now all of a sudden it almost forces you to violate other New Testament patterns. And uh, I just don't want to go there. I mean, I, I've been there. How's that? I've done that. I've seen, I've seen the good and I've seen the bad. And I'd rather go with the New Testament example. I'm still I'm, reeling from when you said, don't call that church in reference to MacArthur and Piper. That's a yikes. Well, I would call it a ministry meeting. It's a ministry of a few gifted people, and I'm all for that. That's great. But, um, you know, what they do is they, they turn it upside down. And I don't mean to unduly pick on them, but a, a huge church, the big show they call church. And then during the week, as maybe Nathan kind of pointed out, you've got these small fellowship groups around, and they don't call those church. They call those ministry cell meetings, ministry meetings, ministry groups. But it's just the opposite. The small groups really is what is church, and the big show is a ministry meeting. And what what ought to be primary and non-negotiable is the small meeting. What is ought to be secondary and the first thing to go if you got a problem is that great big meeting. So I think it's just upside down. Nathan, you any thoughts on that? Awfully quiet over there. Uh, that's all right. I warned you I was going to be uh, pretty quiet anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's to me, it's it's fascinating um, to hear uh, different perspectives and different points of view on um, you know church dynamics and how the the church should be run. Um, I I had you know a, a unique uh, background growing up. I mean, I was I was a denominational mutt, and so I saw. A lot of different ways in which um, you know church was done and held, and you know, including you know the the small in-home churches when churches were you know being planted and started and um, moving you know to hundreds and you know even in some case you know over a thousand um, you know uh, people in a in a church, and I think I think the key thread through all of that is. I think you're absolutely right, Stephen. I think in a church of you know several thousand people, if if people are getting lost within the crowd, then then I would agree that you can't really call that church. You know, if if you're not taking time to get to know one another and fellowship with one another, and and you're just you know you're, you're walking in and you know almost punching your time card type thing, then yeah, I think I think you're getting lost in the mix, and and that's not really church. But I think even if you know, you're, you're getting the main body of, um, the biblical teaching from someone who is, you know, uh, has dedicated, uh, you know, their time and life to the scholarly study of God's word and to shepherding, um, you know, people, and then you're breaking off into your smaller groups, then, you know, I mean, to me, that's, that's still, 
church because the the emphasis of the larger is to promote the smaller because they know that's where the discipleship and the ministry is going to take place. Sure. Amen. Well, you know, Adrian Rogers, I heard him say when I was in church here, he said he uh, he wasn't smart enough to preach anything besides the Bible. Mm-hmm. But he was smart enough to know not to preach anything. The <laughs> right? And I, that's the way I look at church practice. I mean, I've read a lot of those books on church renewal. And, you know, everybody's got this way of doing church and that way of doing church. And all they're brilliant and they're creative. And it's like, wow, you know, the Willow Creek model and the Andy Stanley model and all that. But I, I feel like that about the way Adrian did on preaching, I, you know, uh, I'm not smart enough to think up a way of doing church that that's beyond the Bible, but I do feel like I am smart enough not to try to do something that I don't see in the Bible. And that's, that's the approach I've, I've taken. Right I'm, not, I'm not throwing rocks at other people. That's not my purpose. I, I wrote this book to try to influence church planters mm-hmm. to consider doing church a new Testament way instead of some way they've inherited from the denomination. In fact, uh, according to Barna, the, typical American church is under hundred people. So most churches in America are small churches and could do most of the things in this book if they were so inclined. I think one of the bigger dangers even, well, maybe at least equally big of, of people kind of being inaccessible to each other, not knowing each other, you reference pastors being kind of spirited away and separated away you know, or sometimes they even have security, you know, keeping the, the unwashed man. I'm, I'm not going to say his name, but a certain guy with enormous biceps and a teeny little microphone um, at, at one point had people uh, kicked right out of the church for wanting to try to talk to him. And, and yeah, if a pastor can't know his people, I, I, I do agree that that's I mean, I'm not going to say that's not a church. I'm going to say that's not pastoral ministry. Mm. That's maybe, right. maybe you're, you're separating out and you're, you're able to do the Episcopos overseer stuff on this huge macro level. But if you're going to call yourself pastor, you got to do the shepherding, which includes, yes. you know, right. knowing people. And, and of course the plurality, I, I didn't bring up the, the elder led because I, I didn't think anything in that was, I mean, that's, that's the same sort of stuff you read in, in most any kind of reform Baptist movement or anything. It wasn't, it wasn't too far out. Uh, uh, from what people are already doing in most most churches in our spheres, um, but you know what really blew my mind was the the figure I'd never heard this two million dollars to plant the church if you do it with all the bells and whistles and and fog and lights and and everything. Um, how 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 much easier and, and would it be if everyone could just say, all right, we're going to start somewhere real small and start a tight knit community of people uh, following Jesus together. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, amen. And rent a place, ideally, rather than buying it. The the, the problem with house churches in that sense is a, a modern day Western house church is too small. And although churches typically do start out in somebody's living room, and I'm all for that, uh, pretty soon you're, a, you're in a maximum number of people that can fit in there. And if you stop there, I think that's sub-New Testament. Uh, so you don't want a mega church, but you don't want a micro church either. So I think there's got to be that commitment to uh, f- buying or renting a home that's big enough to hold 100 people and the cars that they drive up in or looking for a place to rent that's suitable, that's got a home-like atmosphere, can accommodate the food 
And then of course also, you know, big enough for your a hundred so people to meet in. So, uh, so yeah, it's that happy medium between the two extremes. But if, if you can keep meeting in an American house and do that, I'm all for it. It's just, but we were, we were doing that here. We were modifying load bearing walls and tearing out walls and we were getting 60, 65 people in a house. But then the County came after us because all those people drive up in cars and mm-hmm. they didn't like all the cars on the residential street. Yeah. And so that got us in trouble. I guess yeah. uh, that did, that wasn't a problem in the first century. So much. <laughs> <laughs> that, when, we have a, uh, we've had a number of, of refugee groups meeting in, in our church building. Um, and, and one of them was a Nepali group and they first invited me to come and, and preach and, and officiate the Lord's supper. Uh, and I came to a little one bedroom apartment, uh, in this kind of iffy part of town. And I walked in and there were a pile of shoes there because Uh, there were 50 people uh, kind of sitting on their knees from little tiny kids to old, old, old folks. And, uh, I preached to them. Uh, they all kind of introduced themselves. We, we, we had uh, a meal. It, uh, the, the Lord's Supper was, was separated from it, and it, like it would normally be in, a, in an American church today. But uh, they, they were only uh, moving out of there because of a hassle. You know, they, their culture, they didn't have a big problem being in close proximity. They'd been right. all in the refugee camps. You know, they, they knew yeah. how to be close to each other. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I wonder about, like, what are the legal ramifications of trying to do some of this stuff are do you promote uh, not, you know, if, if you're not going to become this corporate identity, do you think people should not file all the, you know, nonprofit paperwork and stuff, or is that not part of the New Testament church dynamics? Well, I think that is a freedom issue. You, it's no problem to get a tax identification number from the federal government. It takes everybody five minutes. You download it, bang, there it is. Churches do not have to file income tax reports. I mean, that, that's it. That's what churches just don't do that. And so you don't have to do that. You really just need a tax identification number if you're going to open a bank account or if you're going to sometimes it's helpful to take up money in a common pool to send to missions. Or if you're going to support a pastor, which is not uncommon, then, you know, you got to put that money somewhere. And then if you're an employer as the church and you're going to I don't know whether you want to issue him a 1099 or W2 depends on how you set it up. But um so, no, I'm not opposed to doing that. That's just a, a hoop you can jump through. The government, our government, doesn't stop us, that I've been able to tell, from doing anything that God has called us to do. And if it, if it ever did, of course, you just don't register, like in China. But, mm-hmm. but no, uh, I think it is helpful to have a corporate account for missions and supporting uh, qualified elders, for sure. Uh, we only have a little time left, so let me segue that from, I mean, so the small churches, part of it is the one another ministry, as as you write. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you just referenced kind of how paying a pastor is, is part of what most churches do. And when I was reading that chapter, my thoughts went to, as a pastor, you immediately get defensive and think, well, if everybody's kind of contributing to the worship service, are people going to start saying, well, what are we paying this one guy for then? You know, I wonder if, there, if part of the system is uh, stacked toward um, the one guy kind of carrying the, the load, uh, as it were. Well, you know, it's well, and short answer is I think no, because in First Corinthians 14, he's mentioning all the different spiritual gifts. And one of the gifts is in ESV, it says lesson. And we know there is such a thing, not only as a gift of teaching, but as a gift of pastor teacher. 
And so gifted people are not that common in the church. Um, so I don't think you're ever going to replace a pastor. It's, also, somebody's got to have the time to d- dedicate to study, spend the hours of in-depth preparation to have a quality lesson each each week or, or whenever. And then on top of that, outside the church meeting, there's the marriage counseling, there's the discipleship, evangelism, seeing people in the hospital. There's big advantages to having to a full-time guy or at least a part-time guy. And there's a difference between paying a man to do a job and releasing a man to do a ministry. So if you got a guy that's really got a heart for the ministry and he's meets the qualifications for elder and he's what Paul called those who, you know, work hard at preaching and teaching or the word of the ministry, however that's translated, then to be able to release that guy, to, it's a blessing to the church and we need more of them, not less of them. So as long as uh, the, the pastor understands there's the freedom for the brothers to speak and that shouldn't be a threat to him in his teaching ministry and all the other stuff he does during the week. That's not a problem. I've been both bivocational and full-time at this since 1983 and it's much better to be full-time than it is bivocational. Let me tell you, it's just a blessing to have that extra time to serve the body of Christ. But most of that time I've been doing New Testament church and I never ran out of things to do. And so if, if a guy feels threatened, it's because he's insecure and not really understanding the functioning of the body and how it's supposed to work. Now, when you say there are not, it's uncommon to come across gifted people in the church. There's not going to be so many, it becomes uh, unwieldy or, or, uh, right. or kind of disorder and chaos, like, which is what First Corinthians 14 is about avoiding. Um, what about uh, the, the multitude of people who think that they're gifted? Oh, I was going to say, um, my job as a teacher, my, oh, my job as a pastor, is when somebody gets up to speak, and it's terrible, I coach them after church to help them understand what is and is not edifying. And, you know, some people just talk too much and I have to coach them. Don't tell me how to build the clock. Just tell me what time it is. And other people are mute and they've got God doing good stuff in their life. and They never say it. And I try to put dynamite under them to get them to talk. And so um, my job as a coach is a large part on the sidelines. I'm not trying to be the star player. I'm tr- I might be a player coach, but I'm not interested in being the star. I want to get those other guys out on the field with the ball. And so a lot of my job is behind the scenes coaching. And some people are just so terrible. Um, you know, I have to spend a lot of time with them and related to that though, uh, Zach, you know, a lot of guys are just not walking with the Lord and, and you give them a chance to speak and they don't speak because God's not doing anything in their lives because they're turned off. And, and if they do speak, you're sorry they did because it's obvious they're not walking with the Lord. And so uh, I spent a lot of time doing damage control with those guys too, but you know, that's just part of it. Um, so yeah, I'll, it's, it's a lot easier to let nobody speak, but the trained guy, but God's way is to let these other guys speak. And they'll not, now my job becomes, okay, guys, this is edifying. This is not edifying. And coaching them, it's always a work in progress. And every time somebody new comes in the church, I kind of like have to start all over again with that person to help them get a feel for the things that are edifying and the things that are not. And um, 
the other people in the church have to, we have to love each other enough to put up with it whenever now and then a guy speaks who really shouldn't have been up there. But as long as they know the elders are dealing with it behind the scenes, most people are pretty tolerant of it. It's not, it's certainly not something you'd broadcast. <laughs> yeah. Nathan, you, you got any uh, thoughts on this stuff? Um, I, I know that you guys at, uh, Greg's church do, uh, have people you know get up and share and speak and stuff sometimes mm-hmm. we certainly do at my church right um i i know that uh my my buddy ted when he he was at a church pastored by a rather famous guy here in town he he wrote a, a very famous book called why we love the church uh and and there was a whole chapter about how much he hated the the like freestyle service where anybody could get up and say anything because it <laughs> became such a gong show and such a like look at me fest and um I guess what you're saying is that that the job of the elders is to make sure that doesn't happen, not to reward that when it does, and to direct people away from that and toward uh, lifting up God and edifying the body with what they say and how much they say. Amen. An edifying meeting doesn't just happen. God gave the church elders for a reason. Well, even the word overseer in the Greek, you know, he's, he's like a quality control guy. He's looking over everything, be sure and it goes right. And, um, well, first is we don't let anybody speak unless you're a church member in good standing. So that cuts out a lot of, uh, you know, they say bugs are drawn to the light. So if you got some unhinged people in the community that hear you've got a participatory meeting, you mm-hmm. know, they think they've seen truths that John Calvin never saw. And they're going to start the, a second reformation right there in your church. Well, not ours or not. <laughs> they don't speak unless you're in good standing. Number one, number two, um, we do coach them on how to be edifying. Number three, we're not talking about a huge crowd of people. There's no stardom here. You're talking about a fairly small church. Well, see, that removes the lure of um, America's Got Talent, where you're standing in front of these huge <laughs> crowds. Well, no, you're not. You know? See, so that removes that. And we know we know everybody, and we know who the nuts are. You know, you always got nuts. And, and, <laughs> and, and we work with the nuts, and we love them. And some people... We won't let them speak. And we say, look, brother, until you are able to hold down a job for six months or until you hadn't been drinking for six months or until you hadn't beat your wife for the next two years, whatever it is, you're not welcome to speak. And we work with them very closely. So it's a privilege. It's an honor to be able to get up and edify the church with what you say. So we, just like in the Old Testament, you'd bring this perfect, sacrifice to the temple we try to get people to think of what they say in that way that okay they thought about it they're presenting an offering to the church and to the lord through what they say so there's a there's a decorum and there's a deliberateness about it we we try to uh discourage the off the cuff i haven't really thought about it comments that people might otherwise make and 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 we we require them to stand up, walk to the front, and get behind the podium to say it. And that little bit of formality cuts out a lot of things that people might say that shouldn't be said. Because it, it requires you to get up there and think about it before you, mm-hmm. you, know, before you get up there. Hmm. So it's, it, it, you don't have kind of the, the fully spontaneous uh, Quaker kind of deal where you're mm. in, in the round and mm. there's no... no. There's no uh, absolute truth you have the pulpit still there signifying we're speaking all on the on the authority of the word of god and it'll be weighed by the by the people and and there's a standard 
Uh, well, amen. In fact, we have yeah. a statement of faith. You know, we go by the first London Baptist Confession of 1644, and we tell people. What an, the, I have never come across a church that uses that one. Well, that's us. <laughs> let's do it. Let's do another podcast. I tell you why we use that one instead of the second one. I would absolutely <laughs> love to do that. I don't All know. Right. If- if that could keep Nathan's attention or not, but I'm obsessed <laughs> with, with uh, Baptist confessional statements, so that that's very interesting. Well, so, okay, so everything has to fall in line with with orthodoxy. You're not you're not gonna right. right have right. you ever had to stop someone in, like in mid screed? You know, like uh-huh. sorry, buddy, well, this is not right. Yes, uh, in the old days, we weren't wise enough to say you had to be a member. So some people would show up and leap up there. And they would, that was bad. And so, yeah, we, we try not to embarrass people and slam dunk them. If it's just kind of wrong, we'll usually let it slide or maybe get up when they're done and say something about, thank you for sharing. We have a hard time agreeing with everything you said, but we appreciate, you know, your desire. Uh, but if it's just somebody's denying the Trinity, we stop them. Yeah. Okay. In love. We in love, you know, well, you know, in any church, if you, if you'd, let anyone in the pulpit. I mean, I've had people from the Gideons come and speak and thought, oh man, yikes, that was an accidental heresy. You know, I mean, so that <laughs> unless you just guard it like a dog, you know, on a chain, which which is so unbiblical to be like autocratic oh, about it, you I have know. to take a chance and trust the Holy Spirit is, yeah. is speaking to and yeah. through other people. Yeah. Yeah. We, right. we, you know, love covers a multitude of sins and we, we try to err on the side of graciousness for sure. Um, I flew over a military cemetery one time in Virginia, and you know those things, they're perfect. There's perfect order in a military cemetery. It's, it's neat rows, diagonally this way, that way. Everything's identical. There's perfect order, but there's no life. And I'd rather risk a little disorder and have life than, than have perfect order and just squelch it and kill all the life out of it, you know? I like your sermon illustrations. I wish that in talking extemporaneously, you you had the kind of dedicated alliteration that you have in your book. Uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> although that's asking a lot. That's asking a lot, man. This old boy loves his peas, man. Well, I get on the roll, you know. <laughs> I, have, I have one more question for you before we uh, have to let you go, and I really thank you for your time. This is all I, I, I can tell by. Um, Nathan's uh, comments, he, he's as fascinated by what you're doing as, as I am. Um, I love the, the, the referencing, the kind of positive use in the scriptures of paradosis, paradidomy, um, traditions handed down, you know, from the saints, uh, from the apostles. And, and so you, you know, you, you're saying, if I heard you right, you, there are things that are prescribed and then there are things that are described that we ought to want to emulate, even if they're not mandated, um, and, and I'm wondering if sharing everything in common, like the earliest church did in Jerusalem, is one of those traditions that must be emulated or should be emulated. And if not, how is it that you kind of draw the line on, you know, what, what are we going to try to emulate from the earliest early church and what we're not? Well, you could say the same thing about foot washing, couldn't you? Um, sure, sure, yeah. You... I think it takes a sophisticated approach to the scriptures, and we try to go with the general consensus of what most people who have studied the Bible or most scholars say was a common practice in the church. Uh, For example, plurality of elders seems to be a common practice uh, within a single church, and so that's a a pattern. Um, When you look at the communalism of Acts, 
You only see one church that ever did it. There's no indication that any other church did it. There's also no command to do it. So it's certainly not prescribed. Um, and I would argue that it, in the example given us in the Jerusalem church, that was a temporary solution to a temporary problem that we should consider following under similar circumstances. But barring those circumstances, there's no reason to do it. And what I mean is, it looks to me like you've got, who knows, one or two million people in Jerusalem for Passover, Pentecost. They, certainly the city swelled to many times its normal size. Pentecost comes, Holy Spirit falls, thousands and thousands of people are suddenly converted. Thousands. Well, now what? They can't go back home to Alexandria and join the local church there because every church leader in the world is in Jerusalem. The only church in the world was in Jerusalem. So <laughs> what are they going to do? It looks to me like that communalism was in response to the need to pay for all these pilgrims to stay longer in Jerusalem to learn about Jesus before they went back home to Rome or Alexandria or wherever they came from. So it, as I see it, it was a temporary and creative solution to a temporary and creative problem. And we should be willing to do the same today. We see the example of sacrificial giving, but I don't see that repeated in the rest of the churches in the New Testament and throughout the Roman Empire because the need was different. You're not feeling the burn, man? I beg pardon? You're not feeling the burn? <laughs> Bernie, Bernie Sanders? 2020? <laughs> it's biblical. <laughs> what a weird note. What a weird note to part on. I don't know why I went I don't know why I went there. Well, listen, that's all right. Uh, if anybody wants to sell their stuff and send it to me, I'm, I've got the gift of receiving. So, <laughs> and you got the gift of selling. Uh, you, where can we get your book? Uh, thank you for comping us copies so, so we could uh, be informed when we talk to you. Uh, if someone else wants to get a hold of this, is, is the best place ntrf.org? Or do you have it on Amazon? Or, or it is on Amazon, but I tell you what, for all your listeners, we'll give them a copy for free if they just send us their address. So go to the website, NTRF, New Testament Reformation Fellowship, ntrf.org. Contact us. Just that's where you go and send a uh, send your name and address and we'll send you a copy of it. No and there's problem. a lot of lot of teaching on the website, uh, lots of different stuff, all on these these topics. So if if you're interested, if this picked your interest, uh, yeah, definitely have a look at at uh, the new. So it's called the New Testament Reformation Fellowship. Fellowship. Yes. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it, and this has been this has been very uh, interesting discussion. Well, God bless you guys, Zach and Nathan. I appreciate what you're doing, and I'm looking forward to that podcast about the First London Baptist Confession. Nice. We'll do it, man. <laughs> We're right. not even joking. Good. All right. All right. Awesome. Thank Talk you, Steve. Later. Okay. Thank Bye-bye. you, gentlemen. Good night. Bye. Man, Zach, that was a ton of information. Really good, and I'm glad that you um, – uh, took the lead on that. I was relatively silent other than, you know, the time I opened my mouth and looked like a complete idiot. So, Oh, you did uh, not stop it. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, uh, Zach, In fact, we, I, I kind of agree with what you were saying. I wanted to almost kind of cut him off in the past. <laughs> if he was going to try and shoot out down your whole <laughs> argument with, with that one fact. 
what well, I what how I would thought, you man, respond was, to that, uh, Zach? Let me let me ask you. Um, how would you respond to that? To to what? What you said, or to the whole well, thing? Well, to to what you said to me. You know, like you know oh, the the, um, the believers meeting daily, and all, you know, and all that stuff. How would how would you kind of respond to that and and work through that? I don't know that I don't know that we do have more fellowship than they did. I, I think mm-hmm. we have less. I think we have different kinds, mm-hmm. and I would like to see more. Um, I, what I would like to see more of in the church is not necessarily uh, spontaneous elements in worship. Although, I mean, if that's your thing, that's great. But spontaneous worship. Um, mm. It seems to me like, I mean, Peter's in prison. What happens? All the women of the church gather at Mary's house and pray all night. That's mm. a that's their prayer meeting. Yeah, it just hap- it just happens. Um, you know, they're they're together. They're worshiping. That's just what they do. What are, what are they doing? I was just preaching this week on. Uh, with the the passage where Paul and Barnabas are sent out uh, and yep. they're in Antioch and they're together, the elders, what are they doing? They're worshiping, you know? So like, I, I'd like to see a lot of that. And they had that in the early church. I think maybe like what you were saying was we get a lot of this stuff in. It just doesn't take the place of the, the main worship gathering right. where you have to um, have a hundred people able to come together and worship or, or however many are there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting talking. And I just, you know, I want to say, cause Zach, you and I are, are probably going to go another few minutes here and just kind of talk about this. Um, Steven not being online, um, with us anymore. Um, but I, I really, I appreciate his approach. He said it several times, you know, this isn't something that he looks at as, you know, uh, he looks at this as a, you know, kind of a freedom thing. And I really appreciate that because I know a lot of people who are like, no, this is wrong and you're doing it wrong. And, um, right. you know, and I really appreciate his attitude about that and his spirit about it. Um, you know, so, so let me just, uh, say that and, and caveat, you know, things that I'm yeah. probably going to be saying is that, uh, and, and listen- parenthetical, even when he seemed to kind of go way off over the top with, yeah. uh, don't call that church. When he clarified, meaning, yes. no, no, I'm not saying they don't have a church. I'm saying that church is more happening at the small group level yes. than it, So, so he, he, yeah, he, he was, for a minute there, I was like, "Ooh, what kind of guy do we get on here?" When he right. said that, but but he, he walked it back and explained what he meant. So yes. yeah, go ahead, go ahead. And, Sorry yeah, that. so you know, I I really I appreciate that so much about him, and the dude is uh, very knowledgeable. You can tell that he's done. Um, you know, research that he's done his study. And so, you know, all that stuff out there, you know, tons of respect for him. And actually, um, I, I'm thinking back to an episode where we had, uh, John Frame on the podcast uh, a few years ago. And I think John Frame. The smartest man alive. Yeah. Perhaps. Like, I think <laughs> he would agree with much of what Stephen said. Like, if you were to listen to his thoughts on the church and what the church should be, I think he agrees a lot with it, but one of the things that I remember him saying on the podcast, because um, I remember asking him the question, should we try to go back to that? And his response was, no, God has moved his church in a different direction at this point. That trying to go back to um, a lot of those things as as you know, uh, quote unquote, idyllic as they would be and as as much as they were kind of set up as this model – you know, we we have to ultimately remember that when when Christ, you know, was talking to Peter and he said, you know, upon you I'll build 
my church, you know, that Christ is the one who's been building and developing his church throughout the years. And so all the, all the, the movements and the tweaking, and I, and I don't think the church is, is by any means done. I think it's going to continue to move and, and, you know, do things differently. It's going to develop differently. Um, you know, I'm sorry, but you know, I think it's a huge blessing. Um, like we've talked about before, uh, you know, John Piper's church and ministry, the fact that you can go on and you have access to so many resources. And the only reason we have access to all those resources is because they had such a large church where they were yeah. able to build and develop. You know, we did, wouldn't did you have... Catch, uh, sorry, man. Did you catch oh, yeah. Doc and Debo this uh, this week? They talked about the strengths and weaknesses of small and large churches. And they, they said just that, like the number of resources that can come out of a large church yes. and benefit the small churches, it's, it's staggering. Right. And I think that's, you know, one of the things that we need to keep in mind and remember, I mean, you know, think about, uh, I get, you know, think about Tim Keller and, you know, all the, all the stuff that he's been able to do, you know, being right in downtown Manhattan and, you know, so yeah, there, there is, um, and I, and I grew up in a small church. I mean, I can remember all throughout my high school, there was 120 in our church and, and yes, there are great benefits, um, to being in a small church. And I, I acknowledge that in so much so that it was very difficult for me to transition into a larger church. Now, thankfully when we had transitioned into, um, CFC, uh, they were they were still smaller and growing at the time. There was around 200 people. Uh, now we're over 400. Um, and and yeah, I mean he's absolutely right. I do not know um, everyone in the church. Um, not even uh, you know close to it. Some of these people um, I've been going to the church close to nine years now, and I and there are still people that I I don't know, and they've been in the church as long as I have or longer. Um, but there are groups of people that I have very close connections with and they are, they are my family. They are the ones that I would go to, you know, and, and among them is, you know, one Greg Dutcher. Greg is one of my closest friends. Um, Never heard of him. I know. Right. (laughs) The slacker. Um, although, uh, we should be having him on next week. Little side note. Nice. Um, should, because haven't we been saying that for the past, you know, six months? Um, but, you know, <laughs> um, but, but, you know, the things that we are currently able to do in our church, we weren't able to do when we were at 200, you know, we, we are starting to do, um, live video street streams. Um, and, and we are getting, um, the gospel out to more people at this point because we have the ability to do that. Um, and so, yeah, you know, coming from that smaller background and moving to a larger background was, was difficult. I don't know that, um, and, and I think it would be equally difficult now for me to transition back into a smaller setting. Um, you know, so, um, again, I really appreciate, um, you know, Stephen and, you know, uh, the, the things that he's doing and saying, um, I was, very silent, uh, for most of the time. But a lot of that was because I was pondering the things that he was saying when, when someone can get me to shut up and think about, uh, the stuff they say, you know, uh, it, it's, it's a miracle, you know, um, I've never done it. I know. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but, but he is such a smart guy and I, and I absolutely enjoyed listening to him speak on these topics. 
Um, that being said, uh, and I think you would agree with me, Zach, I don't, uh, you know, I don't agree with everything that he said. And, and so, um, and I'm okay with that. I don't feel like I have mm-hmm. to. Well, I feel like there was throughout the book, especially there was a lot of kind of all or nothing. Yeah. Um, yeah. and you know, and, and a lot of like, and this is just something that's easy to fall into when you're writing and you're already convinced of your own position. There was a lot of um, making a, a weak case for something and then assuming that it's, you know, or, or, or a case for the possibility of something. Yeah. And then assuming that that was the case. Um, you know, why can't uh, the just the bread and the cup also look forward to the coming of Jesus? Right. Uh, he says there's no, you know, uh, there's no uh, better symbolism of a meal than a meal. Well, um, you know, that there, the meals symbolizing body and blood, could we say there's no better symbolism of body and blood than body and blood? And we're going to kill, I mean, like, right, you know what I mean? Right. Like, like if, if you take that to, you know, to other, to other topics, right. it doesn't hold up as well. Um, why, why can't we do the kind of spontaneous and, and discourse and dialogue in Sunday school? And right. a Wednesday night service at a Sunday night service. It's still on the Lord's day. Right. You know, what about things like the big Pentecost sermon? He brought that up, but didn't address that. This is one guy speaking to many. Now he'd probably say that was a special meeting and we should have special evangelistic mm-hmm. meetings. He, he talked about Billy Graham and stuff. Right. Um, and, and I really, uh, I guess I got a couple of critiques that I should have brought up with him on the, the horn to, to defend himself or, mm-hmm. or answer them. Uh, but I think it would do a disservice to our listeners if I didn't mention I I find that kind of weird pointing of uh, singling out of Constantine as this um, wrecked the whole church. He's the point at which everything starts to fall apart. It's it's weirdly affiliated with with a lot of the restorationist churches, and mm. and I think it's just it doesn't it doesn't usually work. Yeah. I mean, he he says in the book there weren't really church buildings that were dedicated church buildings till after Constantine. It's just, it's not true. Right. Uh, throughout right. the second half of the third century, we see these, these, he mentions the house is kind of evolving into especially, you know, modified uh, buildings. But then before long, you've got a, a good number of special built purpose built halls for Christian worship. Right. Diocletian destroys most of them, but they were built. And and the model is after the synagogue. And he, he doesn't ever mention that either. Yeah. That the church, the offices, a lot of this stuff is it's modeled after the synagogue. They had dedicated buildings that were a little larger in format. Um, they had a, a litany, even though, yes, Paul and Jesus were able to speak. It's not because anyone could just jump up at any time. It's because they were visiting rabbis. Right. And so right. they were shown that deference and given a chance to, to say, you know, their stuff. And then one other thing along those same lines is there, there's a lot in this book of, or a good deal, of like, here's a possible rendering of this Greek word. It works sort of. And so I'm going to stake doctrine on it. Mm-hmm. Um. I find it very fascinating the notion that just like the rainbow is there, not to remind us of God's covenant, but God will see it and remember his covenant. Right. Uh, he, he builds this whole thing in there of uh, the the meal being a reminder for God. I don't think it's way off base, mm-hmm. but you know, the word uh, it, it's, it's uh, hold on. It's, it's going to come to me on amnesis. Is that, is that I think that's it. Um, my, my Greek, I'm keeping you as sharp as I can, but there's still <laughs> still cobwebs in there. Um, it, it can mean remembrance, memory, or reminder. Yeah. And he goes on this big thing about how it's my reminder. So if it's his reminder, it's not for us; it's for him. 
Well, what I, I mean, it means memory too, and we're dealing with a genitive here. Remembrance of me. Mm-hmm. It's like condemnation of the devil, right? Is it either the de- the the devil's condemnation that he throws at us, or the condemnation he? It's a little bit, you know, open to interpretation. Right. Right. Um, the notion that uh, the in the Lord's prayer that could mean there's an ESV text note that says daily bread might mean bre- bread for tomorrow. Yeah. But every single translation you look at says daily bread, right? right so we're right. going way out outside of the walls of the safe harbor. Yeah. Um, when it says submit to elders, it actually means be persuaded by them. Except every, I looked at 40 translations and they all said submit. Yeah. And they yeah. all said obey. So we're going out, you know, little ships should stay close to harbor on this stuff. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, whether it means my reminder or remembering him, you know, if I say my memory, it can mean stuff I've remembered or how I want people to remember me after I'm dead, right? Right, right. Um, yep. Maybe it means both. I don't know. But there is danger in saying I can sort of make this work. And then here's a list of people, which he calls what professors, I think, in right. each chapter. And a little clip of each one kind of agreeing with his position and then kind of the the leap to this is the right view on things. Right. Um, right. But aside from that, I mean, for a book that doesn't look like it had, you know, a major house going through editing and, and working through it with him, it's a real well done. Yeah. It's a well done book. And, and the fact that he's willing to give it to people yeah. and let, he's not afraid of people reading this thing and us having these discussions like yeah. we are. Yeah. It, it, it's a it's a really cool thing he's doing and 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 giving of himself into it. I I hate that this is my uh, my time is up here and I hate that this is ending with me like critiquing this with him not here. That's crummy. So let me just say that the guy had a a real kind of intensity and yet a, a like friendliness that was very yes. catchy. Yes. And, and it made me want to know more about it. And I'd love to sit through some of their worship services. Oh, yeah. And and, and this is a dude stuff. that I would, um, you know, we had talked about having him on to discuss, uh, you know, the confessions. You know, I would love to have him on to further discuss this more. I mean, I, I would do that in a heartbeat. And, um, you know, there are certainly – um, people that we've had on and we've never had on again because, um, you know, there, there's kind of been a, a, a kind of cool idea, but the execution and, and talking through on the podcast, uh, th- this was a guy that, um, you know, I, I found myself not really, uh, agreeing with terribly, but would love to sit down and have another conversation with him. And so, you know, again, um, I think this is this is part of what we should be realizing and understand as brothers and sisters is that we can disagree on these things and that's okay and still think hey you know what Stephen is a really cool dude and I would I would love to have him on again and talk with him about other things he's you know he's very knowledgeable about things and and I I enjoyed what he had to say you know my silence and I, and I hope the listeners know this by now my silence on this podcast isn't a statement that you know I'm um you know, I'm holding my tongue. It's, I am deeply invested in what the person's saying. And I, I truly want to know what their point of view is. And I think the other thing is, I mean, not only we agree to disagree and we respect him as a person, I I think without going fully headfirst into this totally different model of, of church, there is so much to be gleaned here. And maybe it moves us, you know, 40% in that direction. 
I mean, there, when, when I read the, or watched his teaching on the Lord's Supper, there was so much there that I thought, man, even without saying, okay, it's going to be a full meal this week, mm-hmm. I was able to bring that to our, our worship together in the Lord's Supper. Yep. Um, I have continually been struggling to get people to wipe the frown off their face. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it's, this is we won, you guys. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, there's a solemnity to it because of what the pi- price that Christ paid, but it's also looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you're not going to be like this, then, you right, know, right. <laughs> th- this is this is good stuff. And, and, and all the participatory worship, it challenges me to make sure more people are involved in sharing their gifts. It's less of a, you know, even in a, in a small church, you can have the show up front. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the whole thing, it just, it, it was a... It didn't. It didn't convince me. That almost persuaded me to become, you know, uh, one of these uh, early church dynamic adherents. Right. Uh, but it challenged a lot of um, my my kind of calcified uh, formality. Yeah. That that we need to we need to break out of it in many ways. And whatever he's got, mm-hmm. um, we need to be able to access that. Yep. You know and. And his people are probably a great model for us in, in a lot of this stuff. Yes. Uh, so, yeah. And, and and he's going all over the world teaching this stuff. You know, mm-hmm. we, we missed him because he was in this country and that. Uh, and and it's clear this is a labor of, of love and, and spiritual passion for him. Yeah. Uh, not an industry or, you know, anything like that. So. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, just again, a reminder to our listeners, um, New Testament Church Dynamics a Leader's Guide to Biblical Growth and Planting by Stephen Atkerson. And if you go to the NTRF, New Testament Reformation Fellowship, and we'll put all the uh, the links on there, but if you go there and you drop your um, name and address, and I'm sure, you know, just kind of let them know that you heard him on uh, these go to 11, um, you know, you can pick up a free copy of it. And, and I highly recommend it, um, you know, getting, getting the book. I would recommend getting this book, um, you know, even if you weren't getting a free copy of it, I would recommend getting this book because, you know, there's a lot of information that you can take and glean from it. Um, but the fact that he's willing to give it away, you know, it, definitely go on there and pick one up. Would be a great uh, study for a small group to do together. It'd be great for discussion around yeah. this. And even if you come to the conclusion of, well, we're not 100% sold on all of these elements, why not? And uh, yeah, making us revisit assumptions is always good. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I got to uh, bolt, there's Domino's Pizza waiting for me, which oh, uh, speaking of things that divide people, some people think it's <laughs> gross and slimy. I think it's delicious. Dude, and, that uh, uh, gonna... garlic crust that they have on that thing, oh, so good. Delicious, yes. All right, man. Well, this was uh, another really good podcast, Zach, um, because we don't do anything less on here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long one. I know, right? It's been a while since we've had one this long. But, um, Zach, we're going to go ahead and sign off now. We just rock the Casbah. These go to 11. <laughs>